It's time to turn off the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve in the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? I can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. If you made a horror movie on your phone, or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send them my way. Now, what do you get when you take the idea of Star Wars, except for take out all the fun and special effects, while you get Crawl? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast. I'm very excited to be talking about Kroll. I know a lot of people might not say that, but uh, especially if you grew up with the film, well, or if you saw the film when it was live at the time. Uh, I mean, what I mean live, I mean in the theaters at the time. This movie's from 1983, and for me, it's one of those films where uh, I definitely did come onto it late in, you know, in my life. Well, not so late. I would say it, this is one of my dad's favorite films. Um, I, I don't, he, he was just, I think at the time he was trying to find something just like the studio was that was very similar to Star Wars. And especially when it came to us and it came to me, it was like, I really liked fantasy films. I still really love fantasy films. They're very hard to come by and they're very hard to come by if they're even good. I mean, the last real major one that I can think that was released in theaters was Warcraft. And, oof, that was a little difficult to get through, uh, to say the least. But you don't see a lot of the whole, you know, dragons and creatures and swords and knights and all the other fun shit uh, that is another love of mine. Uh, I just, I can eat that shit up almost every day. It's one of the reasons probably why I glommed on so easily to, you know, the whole Game of Thrones thing or when I was younger reading the Wheel of Time books and really just getting into it. And the 80s were a great era for fantasy movies. You had movies like Beastmaster, you had The Princess Bride, you had Willow to some extent, Conan the Barbarian also, Dragon Slayer. Uh, Legend was huge. I mean, I loved that film as well, and it's one of those films that I eventually want to talk about, not because it's terrible, but because of how much I love it. Um, so that might be a hint for later on in the year. <laughs> but, you know, Highlander, uh, The Last Unicorn, which is a great animated piece. Uh, and then even in the 70s, you had Excalibur, which was the tale of King Arthur. These great fantasy films. Uh, whether they're really great or they're terribly great, 
you know, you had a lot during the 80s, and even some going into the early 90s, you had a couple of films here and there, um, you know, especially like with Dragonheart, for example, which is like half terrible, half great, but you don't have a whole lot of fantasy films nowadays, and if you do, you just get one because everybody's like, uh, but, you know, Game of Thrones, the series that's on HBO... That's the closest thing that anybody has to anything truly fantasy nowadays, and it's done exceptionally well. You have a very well, you know, acted cast. You have a very well put together story, and it's it's hard to come by uh, a really good set of fantasy stories. I think in our current day and age, so there is this fond nostalgia, like going back to a film like this, and when. I remember growing up, and I remember seeing it for the first time. I was really excited. I, and the big thing that always, like, you know, is pointed out to me, or that I remember the most, is the glaive, right? That's, like, the thing that's, like, the coolest thing in the whole freaking movie. Um, it's one of the best-designed weapons that I think that's existed in cinema, pretty much. You know, you have a lot of really cool stuff, and then you got, you know, the right, your normal swords and stuff, but... When you first see him grab the glaive from the lava or whatever the fuck it is, and he just pulls it out, and then all of a sudden the blades come out of the end, it's one of the coolest experiences probably in the whole film, and and seeing a medieval weapon, medieval-like sci-fi mix. And that's really where, you know, as we talk about the film, kind of where things fall apart a little bit in this is because I think there's that mix. And... I say it in the intro, and it's totally true when it comes to this, and it's even totally true when it comes to the studios. You know, they were looking for something that was going to be this, like, the next Star Wars type of thing. Like, okay, this is what's hot, this fantasy sci-fi thing. Because Star Wars mixes a lot of, you know, there's this sci-fi elements because it's all in space, and there's all these different planets and creatures, but you still have, like, that homegrown, like, you know, medieval knight type of thing with the Jedi and the way that they, you know, use a sword, but it's a saber because it's in the future and all this fun, like, Star Wars stuff that I could just spit at you for a while. Uh, But no, it's just like, thinking like a studio exec, you know, it's like, we need to capitalize on this because that's really cool. And, And the story can come down to being really, really cool um, and it can be really well done, but then there's Kroll. So, you know, that's why this film was one of the reasons why. And, and the director, Peter Yates, it's one of his films that, like, this is the biggest deviation from anything that he had ever did and anything that he will do. And I don't fault him for what is done because the the biggest thing, I think, with this film, and not spoiling the end of the review or anything... But I feel like the script is probably the weakest part of this film. Like, the story itself, this movie could have been cut down by about 40 minutes, and it would have been great. Like, there, so maybe some of it does go on to Peter Yates. Like, he does these really large scenes of absolutely nothing, and like, why do I have to watch this? Um, and there's there's just times where... We don't necessarily need to, like, watch them walking for a while. We don't need to watch them doing something. I know there's this, like, grandiose type of epic scale that we're trying to get in and look at how big this world is and what they have to do and all this fun stuff. But at the same time, it's kind of like, 
uh, do we really need all this? Um, and then when it comes to the script, it feels like it's like vignettes. Everything is in a specific part. You know, they built 11 big studio, like, uh, sets and sound stages for this film. So it really feels like you're on one of those giant sets. And this was done in the 007 studios over in the UK. And it's a UK slash American, um, production. So, at times, you do have, like, British actors that are in it that you can totally be like, oh, yeah, and then there's weird American things that are going on, especially one. Um, but it really feels like, okay, this is, we needed to use this for this period of time, so this is where everything's going to get shot. And then we're going to go to this type of setting, and that's where that's going to get shot. And then we're going to go over here, and that's where that's going to get shot. And then we're going to do some, like, outdoor stuff, because we've got a couple days in the outdoor, and we're going to mix them into different things. So nothing really feels like it's truly cohesive. Everything just feels like there was a bigger picture involved that, like, they just couldn't wrap around each other. Like, you... It makes sense. I mean, most films, and when I say like, oh, it feels like it's just pieced together. I mean, all films are kind of filmed in different ways, but there is continuity to a lot of films, even if you have vignette pieces or you have these like sections where you, you know, it feels like you're jumping from scene to scene to scene. But at the same time, it's like we don't necessarily feel that way. Like, we still feel it's like one cohesive movie. A a recent example I'll use is Aquaman, okay? If you think about that film, uh, which I don't have anything against, it's just I'm bringing this up, Dave, so please don't worry about it. Uh, But (laughs) what it's like, those are like scenes, right? They are sections of the movie, but there's a journey that goes in between every of them, and they don't feel... Like, they're disjointed. You know, you can say... There there are a couple of ones, like, you know, a little bit in the beginning, and maybe that whole scene with Black Manta where he's attacking them after they found out the whole, you know, where to find the trident type thing. You could say that was a little disjointed. But overall, even though you're going on a grand adventure and you're following them with it, it doesn't feel like this is a chop scene and we just put it here and we've transitioned to the next chop scene. Everything feels like it flows, and and it, part of it is the direction, part of it is the editing, part of it is the story. You know, a story can be very weak, but you can still be lost within itself. And I feel at times that Kroll has that problem. Maybe this is a problem because this is films from 1983. Maybe it's a problem because uh, of the way the direction was done, the editing was done, Or, you know, maybe it just truly is a problem of the film, but this is the way I feel going back to the film. Again, when I was a kid, I loved this film. I absolutely loved it. And there are still parts I really do like about the film, but it's just something that's completely lost to me, I guess. My my nostalgia glasses for this film uh, were definitely bigger than I thought. And I think that, like I said, I think it's the pacing of the film. And I even wrote down, like, in the notes that I took at one point that the reason that this film is was a failure was because it feels so disjointed. Um, and, and spoiler, again, this film was a bomb. Um, you know, at the time, it took about, uh, I think it was $36 million to make. Um, I can totally confirm that right there. Um, it, yeah, 30, actually, 37 point, or $27.3 million, 
and it made about $16.5 million. Now, today, if you were to translate those numbers into current numbers, you'd probably look at this film being more like $120, maybe $130 million because they wanted it to be this big box office thing. And on top of that, you'd have this huge marketing campaign, and you'd have Kroll cups at McDonald's, and you'd have, you know, Kroll the action figure, and Kroll the video game, and Kroll the toilet paper, and Kroll the flamethrower, and all that shit. And... Uh, then you would, it would probably make maybe 30 million. You know, that would be the disparaging. You know, it made about half of its money back, a little over half of its money back. Uh, so maybe it would make, you know, if I said 130 million, it would make 75 million, just because of the way theater prices are nowadays. So it didn't really make the splash that they expected it to, which they could have spawned a whole franchise from. So it's very interesting when you think about the film that. You know, when we're watching back on it, I really wish this this movie might have been much better in the theaters. And right off the bat, I, I can tell you that set design on this film is fucking fantastic. That's that is probably besides like I guess you consider the weapon design to be that, but the sets are truly magical. Um, they they really make it feel like you're in this other world, uh, and I love the way that some things are shot, especially when we go onto these weird scenes with the beasts and Larissa or Lissa or whatever the fuck her name is, um, that annoying bitch that only shows up every now and then. <laughs> but honestly, it, it's it's such a wonderful film um, in that regard, and we should just totally get into it. Um, and this film, again, was picked for a reason because I want to do a fantasy film. I've been wanting to do fantasy for a while. There's a couple other fantasy films that I want to do, but there's something that's leading up that we'll find out for the next episode. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the wonderful world of Kroll. Now, Kroll is not the name of anybody or anything. It's actually the name of the planet that we're going to be on. The world that we're all centered in is called Kroll. So right away, the title of the film is very fucking misleading because I thought Kroll, and even now I was like, wait a second, what was Kroll again? Kroll was was the weapon? No, 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 that's not it. Was it the main characters? No, no, no. Was it the bad guy's name? No, no, no. It's the fucking world. So, right there, you kind of have one of those fantasy tropes that's going on where we name the books or the stories or whatever it is after the world that we're actually going to have our setting in. Which, again, it's perfectly fine, but I just find it funny when you're thinking about it and you think about Kroll... You never really, you hear it like once or twice right in the beginning of the film when they talk about the world. And speaking of the beginning of the film, the first thing that we get is actually narration on the prophecy that is going to set this film in motion. This it was given me to know, that many worlds have been enslaved by the beast and his army, the Slayers. And this too was given me to know that the beast would come to our world, the world of Krull, and his black fortress would be seen in the land, that the smoke of burning villages would darken the sky and the cries of the dying echo through deserted valleys. But one thing I cannot know, whether the prophecy be true, that a girl of ancient name shall become queen, that she shall choose a king, and that together they shall rule our world, and that their son 
shall rule the galaxy. So right away, we're here with this weird prophecy about a king and a queen that are going to be married and then have a kid, and that kid's going to be the ruler of the galaxy. Now, I would tell you right now that that would be a much better movie. Like, the kid going out to ruling the galaxy. Like, we actually got to this point, here's the kid, and that's honestly kind of where you feel everything's going to be set up, right? Great, you're getting this prophecy, there's a king and a queen, this is the way. Maybe it's going to be the life of Kroll, you know? And and when you look at the previews and stuff like that, if you've never heard of this movie, and just by, like, listening by that, you would think that possibly this is the way we're going to go. And during this time, we're actually seeing the, like, black castle that or whatever you want to call it, the giant fucking space rock that the bad guys all fly in. In the beginning of the movie, you're going through the credits, and it's like watching the beginning of Spaceballs, where the ship just keeps fucking going, and then it says, we break for no one on the back of it. I probably got that wrong, to be honest with you. Um, but it's I'm just like the entire time, I'm waiting for it to just go... If you've ever seen Spaceballs before, please do yourself a favor. But um, <laughs> eventually it does come down. And that's where you also get the credits. And uh, I, I want to honestly say I laughed my ass off because somebody's name is Diggin Ashworth. Um, <laughs> and I still fucking laugh at it. And the reason that I laugh about it is because I think of Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian. And I'm like, this is almost as bad as Biggest Dickus. Um <laughs> But that's the dude's name. Uh, so, <laughs> so we hear about the prophecy. We see that the you know the beast ship has landed on the planet, and he's got all of his people that are now there, and they're, I guess they're terrorizing land. But we never really see anything about it. What we do see is we see a princess and her dad. Now they're like meeting together, and you're meeting Larissa or Lissa or what the fuck her name is. Um, <laughs> it could be whatever the name is from the never-ending story that, that he gave. <laughs> whatever he called her. Um, <laughs> and so, basically, she's going to be getting married to the king's sworn enemy's son. And she explains to her dad why this needs to happen. And he's not very happy about it. Father. Corwin should have been here by now. He may be forced to travel through the forests and the stone country. All the passes and roads are held by the Slayers. Colwyn may not get through. That would please you? I sent men to help. But I see no reason for an alliance with our ancient enemies. Father, the invaders are destroying our world. We must have the alliance. Only if we're united do we stand a chance against them. Then I'll make a treaty with King Toro. It's not necessary for you to marry his son. It's the only way to guarantee the alliance. The marriage is my choice. If it were anyone but Turrell's son. Corwin is a great fighter. Good fighters make bad husbands. Perhaps. So, he doesn't see the need for a treaty. Like, here come these invaders from outer space, and they're killing everybody... And they're trying to take over the planet and rule whatever is going on because that's what they fucking do. And you're like, I don't know. I don't give a fuck. Uh, why the fuck do we need to do this? And 
yes, I get it. The way that the treaty is going to work is so that they marry, so that both houses come together and they can both now live under one fucking kingdom and blah, 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 blah. But honestly, you just wouldn't fucking reach out to him anyway. Like, he's my sworn enemy. I really don't give a shit. Oh, shit. He, they're killing everybody. Maybe I need some help to fucking do this. Why wouldn't you just go out of your way and actually approach him first? If you don't want him marrying your daughter, the son of this guy that you hate, why wouldn't you just go over there and be like, look, we need to have at least a little bit of a truce. We need to join our forces together and stop this giant invasion that's going on because without this, our combined armies, we can't do shit against this. And you know what he's thinking? Oh, fuck it. I, I can just handle this on my own. But it takes the wise wisdom of this princess uh, to suddenly convince her dad that, hey, this is the way that we need to do things for this situation. And the best way to make sure it gets done is to make sure they marry. And hey, this is my choice. This is what I want to do. Oh shit, I guess this is the prophecy too at the same time. Why wouldn't you just, if, if this prophecy exists, and maybe only one person knows it, maybe only the narrator knows that this prophet is actually a real thing, or this prophecy, I should say, not the prophet. <laughs> if, if the prophecy is an actual real thing, then, you know, come down from high and, and tell everybody, look, I, I finally saw it, she's finally making the the choice, but... It also has to deal with has an old name or some bullshit like that. I don't fucking know. Like, who fucking decides what prophecies are fucking real and what's going to fucking work? You know, how does this guy know exactly this is the way things are going to go? Whoever this fucking narrator is, who, of course, we're probably going to meet in a couple minutes. But who do, who goes down and writes everything? Like, and is like, hey, this is going to happen one day. You better fucking follow it. And... You know, he knows that the beast people are coming. Like, this guy, whoever these people are that are going to be here, he's like, if it's written down in the prophecy, why didn't you fucking say something earlier? Why do you have to wait to this fucking moment to, like, finally tell everybody what's going on or come down on the high or do whatever you're going to do? You have to wait till the world's in fucking destruction because, oh, well, this is the point where the prophecy is actually working out. Like, why don't we fucking, like, do a preemptive prophecy and just start fucking doing it? Be like, okay, we're going to find everything out and figure out what's going on here. We're going to make sure that this person gets married. Is this the son? Nope, it's not. Okay, go ahead and kill him. Is this the son that's going to be? Nope, no, not that one. Okay, okay, go ahead and kill him. Uh, are these married people are the one that's going to have... What if there are seven fucking kingdoms in this whole fucking universe where... The queen has decided to choose her suitor, and she happens to choose Janitor Phil that's over here, and that's not good enough for fucking royalty, and Phil gets fucking screwed because he was about to become a, a you know, a prince, king, or whatever the fuck he is, and here, you know, she chose him, and if they had a kid, you know, and he ended up, you know, she ran away, now she's Miss Janitor, no longer a fucking princess, and we don't know that this little fucking street rat here is one day gonna go into a desert and find some magical fucking thing to make, you know, the world a better place. Who the fucking knows what's gonna happen, right? It just happens to be that these two that we're going to meet are the ones that are gonna fulfill the prophecy. So, I guess the long and short of the story is... Fuck prophecies. Anyway, so here comes Colwyn. These names also are fucking terrible. Uh, Lissa, Colwyn, Ynir, the Beast. Uh, except for now, the Beast just makes me think of James McAvoy the entire time. 
And then you got the rest of the band that we'll meet later on in the film. But here comes Colwyn and his dad, whatever his dad's name is. And his dad is very upset as well that they're going to be getting married. But he makes sure to let them know that this is my choice and this is her choice. We wanted to get married to each other. And we wanted to bring the world so that we can take the armies and fight the beast. And then there's a little, like, fucking lovey-dovey thing that goes on between the two of them. Uh, You know, he's, like, chasing her around the... The hallways is actually kind of a little sweet a little bit and, and before i continue on i need to talk about lissa here or whatever the fuck her name is and the like the audacity remember i said something that they did something to more americanize the film well when you hear lissa talk that's not her voice yeah you're gonna say what because when you're listening to this you're not really gonna know you're not gonna put the cute little face to the voice and she, this film, um, the actress's name is Lisette Anthony. And this was, I think, believe her very first role. And this is one of those, like, ten facts about Kroll that you never knew. Um, and I never fucking knew this, so this is one fact about Kroll that I never knew. Um, and some of those lists, it's like ten facts you never knew. And then it's ten facts and maybe more nine facts that you did know and one that you didn't. And here's the one that I didn't. Um, was that the fact that, one, it's her first film, and two, she was dubbed over by an American actress. Uh, so, growing up, and even coming to this film, I thought that was actually her, but when you're watching and you're like, huh, something's just a little bit off. Like, they did actually a really good job of getting the dubbing just right. It doesn't look like it exists inside of, like, an old kaiju film. Uh, but at the same time, you know, of course, he's, she's speaking English, so it's a little easier to get the dub right. But every now and then, you can see that some of the shots are like forced like a little further away when she's talking. You never really see her up close talking. And I think that's because she got dubbed over. So she's this, you know, young 19 year old actress that has been dubbed over by a 35 year old American woman. Um, it's really quite odd when you think about it while you're watching the film. But if you don't know, you don't really notice it, to be honest. But it sucks because they really felt that she was, like, Americans wouldn't attach themselves to this princess because she had a thick British accent. I mean, what was she, like, a Cockney type of accent where it's, like you know, really, really heavy, you need subtitles to understand her, or was she like, you know, old, like, or American British most, hello, governor, oh, I want to see you, Colwyn, like, bad British, like mine, or something like that, <laughs> or, like, swamp witch British, what type of British was she? Because, honestly, looking at her, um, I'm pretty sure that she had, like, a mousy type of voice, and it was, maybe it was, like, a Carol King type of British. <laughs> and then she would have just started fucking slapping Colin around or some shit like that. Um, but uh, we'll never fucking know because I never went out and researched what the actual actress sounds like. And maybe they found somebody that sounds very similar to her, uh, but just with more of an American accent. Or you know what they could have done? They could have said, hey, could you tone down the accent? Like, be an actress and like you know, ditch it, do a Hugh Laurie and go on a house and sound like you're perfectly American. Like, that would be great. Of course, Hugh Laurie and House didn't exist. That would have been the Hugh Laurie show or Blackadder that he would have been on. Um, and then at that time, he would have been really, really British. So, anyway. So, they do their playful thing and then they do get married. There's a weird ceremony. I really like kind of the scene that leads up to it. Because as they're walking up, uh, the flames on everybody's like little torch like light up as they go by. They douse their flames out and then they do the ceremony. And this is some really 
interesting ceremony where he has this flame on his hand, he puts it into the water, it disappears, and then she grabs the flame, and that's the symbolizing of her giving it back is them actually being married in this world. And then their love for together is an eternal flame, and he's going to become king or something. But of course, somebody has to ruin the show, and that's when Slayer arrives. Wait. Uh, no. Uh, no. No, 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 Guys, 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 guys. Wrong, wrong fucking Slayer. Wrong fucking Slayer. The Slayers. That's the bad guys of this world. They're these weird, like... These the weird armored guys that when they die, like, a weird, like, lobster comes out of their head. I don't know what the fuck it is. That's, like, the best thing that I can, like, figure out what's going on here. Is the fact that this weird bug, and every time one of these guys die, they let out this, like, scream, like, stock, like, It's not like the, whatever that one scream is called. I always forget what it is, but you should know it's like, yeah! Like, oh, that's more of, like, Metallica. Um, that was a head-filled scream rather than anything, but you know which one I'm talking about. It has a specific name, and you always hear it all the fucking time. Um, so, you, you see these guys die, and then they shrink to the ground, and then, like, something pops out of the head that crawls into the dirt. And that's how they die. They die, he dies, you die, everybody dies. Um, and so, <laughs> you have them like fighting everybody and these slayers are one more badass than everybody is there like they manage just to fucking kill everybody constantly by walking really slow and then shooting their they have this weapon that is the worst fucking weapon i think that i have ever fucking seen at least in its usability it's kind of cool it's like this like spear shooter type thing like it looks neat Right? The outfits even for the, the costumes in this movie I really like too. And I like the way the Slayers look. And there's two different types. There's the White Slayer and there's the Black Slayer. Nope, guys. No. We're not going to start playing that again. No more Raining Blood. Okay? No more. Um, but you have them and they're like, they walk. Like That's all they do is they just walk towards these guys. And their weapons have two projectiles on them. Two. That's it. It's got one on the back, and then they flip it over, and they fire the other one. Even though sometimes it fires more than once. Which doesn't make any sense, because I don't see them fucking reloading. But it is the worst fucking projectile weapon that I could see. And then when they get up close, then they have like a sword spear thing. I don't know what it is. It's really fucking weird. So basically, what's going on here is that the Slayers are just fucking slaying everybody. We, we see that, you know, the first person to go down is Alyssa's father. And then, you know, there's a little bit of struggle with Colwyn's father. And then he actually survives something, but then he dies. Uh, they manage to capture the girl by faking out some of the other guards, by hiding on top. So instead of just walking and fighting for this scene, they actually go and jump off the top of something, then come down and walk forward and shoot people. Uh, she manages to throw one of the guards a sword. He fights off the guy with the spear a little bit. The The costumes really make them really awkward, like, when they walk around. When you watch them actually walk and pace, they, like, are kind of stumbly 
stumbly bumbly like when they're doing their stuff it's really uh like they're cool looking costumes but they seem like they're really restrictive into terms of what they can do or else they were told this is the way that you actually have to walk down like the hallways and shit like that so they manage to capture the girl and as she's leaving colwyn's running after her and he gets shot by one of the spear things and they're not even like spear things they're like laser things that's the problem with it again with this fucking weapon that makes no fucking sense because they shoot and like the end of it shoots off but it shoots out a laser instead so when colwyn gets hit by it he's got a burn mark rather than a giant fucking spear thing like going through his shoulder which would have been a lot fucking cooler and it would have been a lot more like fucking metal or some shit then they would have been really no 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 Put your fucking instruments away. We're not doing this joke again. So, anyway, they shoot him. He falls to the ground. And they run off with Lissa. And Lissa's like, Colin, no! And then he's like, we don't know if he's alive or dead. So, after this, we fade out and we come in upon a guy that's going through all the bodies. And damn, he's looting the dead already. Uh, it doesn't take very much time. But it turns out that this guy is not actually looting the dead. He's grabbing the symbol of the king from the dead king. And he's bringing it over to Colwyn. And this is Ynir. Or Ynir. Or, I, again, you have a fucked up name. So, I don't really remember how to fucking pronounce your name. And he's tending to Colwyn's, uh, you know, his wound on his arm or whatever he wants, his shoulder, I guess. And he, all of a sudden, Colwyn wakes up in a cold sweat because he's been revived. Lissa! She's alive. Where? Stay still. Where? For now, beyond your reach. Who are you? I am Yenir. The old one. Well, not as old as all that. You've come down from the Granite Mountains. Yes, I am needed now. (laughs) There is no time now for grief. (laughs) You haven't lost a father and a bride. On the same day. Nor have I become king on that day. I have no kingdom. Your kingdom may be greater than you know. I give it to you, old man, and welcome to it. I came to find a king. And I find a boy instead. Lissa? They will hold her in the Black Fortress. Can you lead me to it? You must have help. I'll find men on the way. In the fortress, you will face more than the Slayers. You will face the Beast, who is their leader. He can be killed. Perhaps. But no man has ever seen him and lived. You will need more than men and swords. You will need the power of the Glaive. So, right away, Ynir is very harsh upon Colwyn. I get it. You know, Colwyn should have a little bit of a moment to grieve. He just lost his father. His wife got stolen. Uh, and it's not even bride, because they're not really married yet. It's bride-to-be. But he really does lay the smack down on him, like, look, 
you know, I expect you to be better than you are. And if you actually want to do what you need to do and you want to be fucking king, then stop your fucking bitch and stop your fucking crying. And you know what? Maybe I found the wrong fucking person because as you can clearly tell, Anir here is the narrator from the beginning of the story. And now the prophecy, again, this fucking prophecy is being like starting to become fulfilled. So of course he's trying to find the guy that's going to be the leader of the prophecy and Hey, he happens to find Colwyn, who just happens to be the guy that he needs to show where the fuck the glaive is. And what is the glaive? Well, the glaive is an ancient weapon that hopefully will help him destroy the beast. Why does this thing exist? Why all of a sudden doesn't have to wait until something terrible shows up before it's fucking useful? So they leave the castle and they go out into the mountains to where the glaive is going to be. And Yanir explains a little more of what the glaive actually is. The glaive is nothing but an ancient symbol. It doesn't really exist. It exists up there in a cave on the highest peak. Without the glaive, you'll never be able to reach Lissa. I need weapons, not symbols. Once the glaive was a very powerful weapon, it can be so again. But only in the hands of the right man. For only the right man can retrieve the glaive. Am I that man? I wish I knew. I cannot go with you. Don't worry, if it's there, I'll come back with it. If you do not come back with it, you'll not come back at all. Okay, two things that we're going to notice about these two characters constantly. First, Inir is always fucking breathing hard. Doesn't matter what fucking scene it is, doesn't matter what he's saying, he always fucking breathes hard. It's constant. Even later on the film, when stuff happens to him, he's still fucking breathing hard. It's really fucking annoying. It happens all the goddamn time. It's always, wait, I, I, I need to do my life. I need to do my lines. I I can't quite do them because they didn't tell me I was going to be walking so much. Oh, oh my God. And I understand. As a fat man, I totally get it. Sometimes when you're walking a lot and you're walking and talking, you breathe a little hard. But it's fucking constantly. The second thing, Colwyn's a fucking bitch, okay? Like, he wants to be this, like, head on his shoulders, like, oh yeah, I'm totally young, rough and tumble, and we can do this type shit. But then he bitches about everything. Like, he goes through, and he's like, he's really trying to channel his inner Luke here from A New Hope. Like, that's the thing that I hear here, especially out of this scene. You know, he's like, but it's just a fucking, you know, it's a story. It doesn't exist. Well, I'm the old man from the prophecies, and you seem to... Oh, sorry. I'm the old man from the prophecies, and I seem to be here. Why did I fucking become fucking Fuckhorn Lakehorn with that? But anyway, um, so, you know, here's this guy here with the prophecies, and he's coming down from the mountain because everything's time, and he's like the quote-unquote old man here, you know, that everybody knows is wise from the mountain. Why wouldn't you fucking believe him? Okay, and so he does go off on his journey, and this is fucking ridiculous, okay? First it starts out, and like, this is one of those scenes where I'm talking about where, like, 
We're trying to show the grandiose nature of the world in the movie, and it's fucking beautiful. You see him, there's these wide escaping shots of the mountain, then we see him climbing. Now, one of the things that was said about this movie is that the stunts were extremely dangerous. And this was something a lot of people, uh, they did on their own. It was... It was very, very expensive, and the environments are very harsh, where a lot of these guys were kind of doing their own stunts. Maybe that's why we see this scene the way that it is, because it's actually the actor here playing Colwyn actually climbing up the mountain, which is great. It's great for the first, like, 30 seconds, maybe even minute. But this goes on for almost five minutes. Like, we're sitting here literally looking at these sweeping landscapes and him climbing up a mountain and walking along a mountain. And climbing a mountain. And walking along a mountain. And then climbing a mountain. Like, why? Why Why does this take so long? Why do we have to show this so much? Are we going to show this in real time? Like, it's going to take me a fucking day to watch this whole scene because it takes him a day to climb up the goddamn mountain? Uh, fuck if I know, but it really feels like it goes on for just a little too long. Like, it would be cool just to show, like, a couple of little vignette, like, quick shots. Like, you could do this whole scene, and I think about a minute, I think everybody would be happy, but it just keeps going. And then even when he gets into the cave to find the glaive, you're just like, oh, fucking thank God, a different fucking change of scenery. And then he does get into there, he goes and into the lava is the glaive as a rock, and he magically can grab it and not fucking burn his hands off. I thought this was going to be another situation where he was going to have big strong hands, put his hands into the lava, and come out as a fucking skeletal hand. You know, it it could have been so much, like, more interesting than it was. And it would have saved a lot more time, I think. It's cool, like, the whole idea of when him going in there and grabbing it and the flames not hurting him. And then the reveal of the glaive, again, like I said earlier, is fucking cool like i really love that i love the way the design whoever like spent the time to make this thing man it is just simply amazing it's a very intricate in its design and it's beautiful at the same time so now that he's got the glaive he's come back and he's returned down to yanir and of course he has to be a little kid about what he's got do not use it until you need it. Well, how will I know when? You will know. You lead me to the Black Fortress, I'll use it soon enough. It will not be so easy. With each sunrise, the Black Fortress moves. Sometimes it is in the mountains, sometimes in the desert, sometimes in the sea. Never the same place twice. You told me you knew where to find it. There are kingly virtues other than bravery. Courtesy is one of them. Sorry. It's the thought of Lissa there. Yes. Yes. Well, I too was young. Once. I too loved as you do. But your love will be luckier than mine. What I told you is that I knew how to find the fortress, and that is by seeking the vision of the blind Emerald Seer. Ah, but his place isn't known either. It is known to me. It is a day's journey from here. Come. So, first off, why do seers always got to be fucking blind? Like, whenever it comes to fantasy fucking movies, the ones that can see into anywhere and any time are always fucking blind. That... 
It's like that becomes your magical gift. Oh, hey, you've lost the vision of sight. Well, guess what? Boom! Now you can see wherever the hell that you want to see. But it's always going to be some type of little bobble or something. Like it's got to be a crystal or a globe or a fucking emerald or a fucking shoe that was left chewed up by the dog or some shit like that. Or like your dignity because you have to have a little person now travel with you everywhere and that's the thing that you see through. Whatever it is, you always have the power of extra sight whenever you become blind in a fantasy setting. So they're going to go out and see the wonderful Wizard of Kroll or whoever the fuck it is and they decide to continue on on their journey. And we see them stop for just a moment at a little pond. And that's where we get possibly the most annoying fucking character in the movie in the form of Ergo. Uh, and we'll get to the clip in a second, because, yeah, this is Ergo, the Magnificent, however the fuck he says his name, uh, short in stature, but large in person, or whatever the fuck it is. And what I want to point out here first is that the actor that plays Ergo, you will notice. You may not know him by the voice. Like, maybe you will, maybe you won't, maybe you'll totally recognize him right away, but to let you know who this is... Uh, this actor, and, I mean, I could say the actor's name and everybody would be like, oh, okay, yeah, I know, no, you don't really know who Ergo is. It's David Batley, um, and he's, least to me, he's most known for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And he's the professor in the beginning of the movie that tells Charlie about, like, the chocolate bar and whatever it is. And if you see him, you would know exactly who he is. So... Just to think about that when going into this film, but I always remember him, and I always thought that it was like an Eric Idle type of person, or even when you first see him, I was like, holy shit, Dudley Moore is in this fucking movie? And then you have to realize that, no, it's not fucking Dudley Moore. Uh, it is the wizard Ergo, and it is, honestly, the most annoying character in this whole fucking movie. <laughs> Help! I'm drowning! This might have been quicksand! I might have been sucked to my death while you stood there gawping! Where is this place? A forest near the granite mountains. Blast! A thousand miles off course. Well, I was rushed. There was a difference of opinion concerning a gooseberry pie. The man left it sitting on his windowsill. What did he expect? Perhaps he expected to eat it. For that rudeness, doubt. I think I'll turn you into a bat. Might teach you some manners to hang upside down for an hour or two. The hill people lack the power to do harm. We shall see about that, old man. We'll see about that. Now, that's a recipe for hot fudge sauce. Oh, well, it'll have to be a goose. Fat and ugly. Very fat, very ugly. So this is Ergo, and like with every fantasy wizard in a lot of these times, 
they're not really taken seriously. Like, here's the comic relief, here's the guy's a bumbling, stumbling wizard. They're either really fucking badass, you know, you get your Merlins and your shit like that where they just fucking control everything, or you get your Ergos, who are the fucking ridiculous, fumbling, bumbling fucking wizards. You get your Merlins from the Sword and the Stone, is what you actually get, instead of your Merlins from Excalibur. So... Ergo here, of course, his fumbling thing is that he can is trying to constantly change people into animals, but instead turns himself into one. He decides that he's going to run off because he doesn't need to be with them, and instead he runs into a Cyclops. And that scares the shit out of him, so he decides to join uh, Yanir and Colwyn and continue on their journey with them. So, and like I said, so far, everything has just been kind of one, like, vignette after another, right? Like, this should almost be an anthology type of film rather than a fucking full-length thing. Because everything is like, like I said before, it's kind of like a little scene. You have your intro scene, and you have your marriage and everybody fighting scene. Then you have your mountain discovery scene and your venturing scene, like it's fucking Clash of Demon Head. And then you've got your fucking, um, you know, scene right here where you go and you meet the wizard. So, here's where we meet one other set of characters, we do the whole little thing, and then we continue on, and we're going off into the next scene. Because he just decides that he's going to go with them, because he doesn't want to get eaten by a fucking Cyclops. And so, when we get to the next little section, and this is where we meet the merry band of heroes that are going to help everybody. Now, there are two people that show up in this scene that are be, will become more famous than everybody else in this fucking movie. And that happens to be Liam Neeson, who plays a bit role, and Robbie Gould, who, if you don't know who that is, all I have to say is Hagrid, and you'll know exactly who it is. So, it's weird to see them both in these roles, they're very early roles in their career, not necessarily the first role for Liam Neeson, but I would think for Robbie Gould, it's somewhat relatively new, I don't know if it's the first role exactly, but it seems like this is the film that most people refer to when they refer to his early career. And so he plays a little scene. We also here get to, well, he's part of the band. He's not the main person. And the main person and the leader of the band is Torkel, who's played by Alan Armstrong, uh, who I really don't know past Kroll, to be honest with you. So here is the setup for the scene where they go into like this weird, again, it seems like they're just walking into a soundstage for this one as well. Uh, they go into, like, this crevice, and then they hear noises, and that's when there's bandits that are about. And so, Ergo decides that he's gonna turn everybody into pigs, and that's when he goes off to get his, like, you know, piece of paper that has the spell that he needs, and he tries to catch it, but he's attacked by Liam Neeson and Turkel, and then he manages to turn himself into a pig and escaping the two axes that were thrown his way. Colwyn fights everybody off, and that's where Torkoal stops the whole fighting thing and addresses Colwyn and the rest of the gang. Well, what have we here? A fighter! Besides, you're short about 90 men. <laughs> Let's just kill them and be done with it, Torquil. Saffron! I don't kill men without good reason. Nor do I. I'd be thankful for it. <laughs> They're escaped prisoners. Everyone. Thieves, bandits, fighters, and brawlers. Desperate men. Desperate as you'll ever see. Good. Those are the kind of men I need. 
your name. See, these men follow no man but me, and I follow no man at all. Would you follow a king? A king? A king. <laughs> Many lunatics wandering through the countryside claiming to be kings, eh? Would you follow a king to the Black Fortress? Now I know you're a lunatic. I wouldn't follow my own father to the Black Fortress. If he could find it. Not that he'd be <laughs> foolish enough to do such a thing. Is it foolish to defend your world? And to fight for your homes and families? Oh. If the invader is conquered, you'll be slaves with the rest of us. Noble sentiments, but we fight for profit. You know what I mean? But the profit's freedom. And fame. Freedom? Well, we have it. And fame. Yeah, it's an empty purse. Count it. Go broke. Eat it. Go hungry. Seek it and go mad. That is true. But this fame and this freedom you could leave to your sons. How did you know I had sons? If the slayers conquer Kral, your sons will be enslaved. Forever. I have no sons. But I will go with you. Whoa. <laughs> Boy, shames you all. Only the King and the Lord Marshal have the case to these manacles. You don't look like a Lord Marshal. No. You look about the right age to be Tuttle's son, eh? Exact age. Ah, Tuttle, you're growing old, your brain's softening. Nine men like you are worth an army. If we succeed, unlock them. Otherwise, I'll die with them. Well, you heard him. We are now an army. Wow. <laughs> Unpaid army. You got problem, Ron. Well, can't a man even talk to himself without being interrupted? So we now have an army for Colwyn. He's got his whole band of thieves, his nine, ten people that he's going to go and take to the Black Fortress. And I wonder what exactly is going to happen here. I wonder how many of these people are actually going to survive by the end of this film. Is it going to be all of them? Is it going to be two of them? Is it going to be seven? Who knows? But we know that they're just fucking fodder. And the only ones that we're going to see are fucking Unibrow, fucking Liam Neeson, Robbie Gold and Torquil. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, one of them, the one that steps out and like, I'll follow you, I'm calling him Unibrow because it looks like he has a fucking Unibrow on the fucking side of his face, uh, or not on the side, but on the front of his face, and the fact that that's the only thing that's prominent about him. It could be that he has, like, hair there or whatever, but it looks like he's just got a full fucking prominent Unibrow staring you right in the fucking face. So, they all band together now. Now, we also have... Uh, a little bit of uh, a common theme here with, you know, at least in fantasy where nobody believes that the true king is actually the king. You know, he, but in this one, he's a lot more upfront about it, but like, yeah, I'm the king versus a lot of them, like, they like to hide themselves, especially when they're traveling. You don't know whether or not there are, like, slayers mixed in with this group. Like, can they actually like, infiltrate human ranks? And, that the bad guy would know if he's all fucking seeing why are you just gonna keep saying yeah i'm the king i'm doing this why wouldn't you try to be at least some type of like you know sly about the whole thing like you know i'm trying to do this and trying to do that or oh yeah i'm going this way maybe if you guys help or whatever like 
He's giving them a good deal, though, when you think about it, because he's basically telling them, look, I don't care what you've done before. I mean, you may have just, like, stolen a loaf of bread, maybe you knocked over that kid for candy, maybe you raped that whole village, maybe you murdered your whole family. I don't care, as long as you come with me, help me get my pussy back, and also save the world from the beast. And they're like, cool, we'll totally go ahead and do that. And, well, not not them, Torquil is the one that says... We're going to go do it because these guys all listen to me. And you wouldn't think that the only person that has any fucking problem with it is Robbie Gold's character of being like, look, I don't really don't really want to do that. We're not going to get any pay for this or anything. But he still goes along with it because I don't know what the fuck this Torquil guy did. Like, what did he do? Like, he promised them riches and fucking fame and fortune and they're just fucking so awestruck by it that they're going to follow him to the ends of the earth? Or does he have something on each of them? Like, he's got a contract on them and he's like, look, if you don't listen to me, tear up this contract and you die fucking instantly. I don't fucking know. We never figure that out. But they just follow him all willy-nilly and continue on to the Emerald Seer's place. We follow the merry band a little bit around while they're on their travel over to the Seer's place. And we get a little scene where Ergo, he is trailing behind and he runs into a slayer. And then the Cyclops from earlier throws his spear. And man, can that Cyclops guy throw a fucking spear? Let me tell you. Throws it across, kills the slayer before it gets to Ergo, and Ergo faints. Everybody comes back, checks in on Ergo, and we wake him up, and we get a little story behind who the Cyclops people actually are. Oh, horrible, horrible. There was a terrible creature over there, and, and over there, a creature with only one eye. One eye? A Cyclops. Who was aiming a spear straight at me. Had that been so, he would now be dead. He was aiming at a slayer, for they have ancient hatred between them. Long ago, his ancestors lived in a world far from Crowell and had two eyes like other men. Then they made a bargain with the beast who was the leader of the Slayers. They gave up one of their eyes in exchange for the power to see into the future. But they were cheated. And the only future they are permitted to see is the time of their own death. They're sad, solitary creatures born to know the day they will die. Today would have been my day if it hadn't been for him. Okay, so first things first. I've been saying Robbie Gould. It's Robbie Coltrane. What the fuck is wrong with me? I'm going to leave that shit in and I can say it here. Uh, but yeah, Robbie Coltrane is actually the guy that was Hagrid and that plays the character in this. We'll just call him Robbie for the time being. Uh, second thing here is that that fate is really fucked up for the Cyclops. I mean, I guess that is, you know, apropos for them. They were craving fucking power and the ability to see forever. And the Beast was like, sure, I'll give this to you. And he changed his, no, wrong fucking movie. Uh, but he basically made it so that they have to fucking see their own deaths. That's the future that they get to see, and that's the timeline that they get to see. But hey, they don't get to be blind. You know, he only took away one eye, but they still can fucking see. So, you have to live your whole life knowing the exact moment when you're going to die. And you can't really change that fate. And there is something that he constantly says about fate whenever we do meet the... Cyclops and when he finally does fucking talk 
it's also very weird that with this like power that they have, the way that the Cyclops ends up, because if you can see your own fate and you can't really change it, you should know exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do these things. So they eventually do, you know, Ergo's a little kind of miffed at the whole situation. They're going to go off in the forest. Ergo's a fucking dick and doesn't want to be left with all the, you know, thieves and bandits and whatever. So Torquil, Ergo, Colwyn, and Ynir go and see the seer. They're off to see the seer, the wonderful seer of fucking Kroll. So they do end up at, like, a rock. Everybody's like, what are you fucking crazy, Ynir? And, of course, the rock is fucking glowing green. So, come on. Magical rock. Everybody knows that you can walk through it. And yet they still like, oh, I don't know. Can I actually do this? And Ynir just walks fucking through. Colin goes after him. Torquil goes after him. And then Ergo finally goes in reluctantly at the end. And that's where we meet the seer for the very first time. So we have the group there. They're explaining to the seer why they want to see the fortress. And if he has the power to actually give him the, the knowledge of where it's going to be. And the seer decides that he's going to go ahead and help them. Meanwhile, we see Ergo over in the corner, and he's talking to one of the... Well, the seer is like help, which is this little kid that it's like Tyke, Tick, Trick, Trike. I can't remember the, what the fucking name of the kid is, and it's probably in the next clip. And then I'll remember for another five fucking minutes, because my short-term memory fucking sucks nowadays. But nonetheless... We have an awkward situation in between, and normally I wouldn't play this clip, but it's a little bit creepy. Got any sugar balls? No. Gumdrops? No. What kind of boy are you? Boys always have candy. I have a cinnamon bar. Share and share alike. I am Ergo the Magnificent. Short in stature, tall in power, narrow of purpose, and wide of vision. That is very impressive. I should hope so. I'm Titch. That's not impressive, but adequate, adequate. Ergo is such a fucking dick, even to this little kid. Like, the kid breaks him off a small piece, and then he takes the whole rest of the fucking cinnamon stick, and it's like, wait, kids are supposed to have fucking candy? Is that the way that this is supposed to go? Like, aren't you, like... <laughs> It really feels like Ergo in another time frame would be the guy that would, like, have the van with the candy that he's going to get the kid. So you should be bringing the candy to him, not fucking trying to get the sweets from the little fucking kid. And you see the type of situation this kid lives in. He's the helper to a blind seer that can see things and see the future and see the past and see the world. You think he's just going to have fucking candy on him? And then you're asking him for stuff that maybe doesn't exist in the medieval time? Jelly drops? What the fuck is that? You're gonna go out in the forest to hunt some fucking gummy bears or some shit like that? But they got that fucking gummy juice, and they're gonna be fucking bouncing all over the fucking place, and you're not gonna be able to fucking catch them whenever you need to. So how the hell is this kid gonna get his fucking candy? He works for a blind guy that has no fucking money. Like, he's not going to go out there. You see him, he's got a fucking, like, mop and bucket. Pretty soon he's going to start learning how to turn that thing into a walking, talking fucking nightmare where it's going to multiply itself and eventually the seer's going to have to come in and fucking stop and kill everything for him. Like, that kid ain't got shit. And yet you're pissed off because he doesn't have any fucking candy for you. 
Get your own fucking candy, ergo. First you're fucking stealing fucking pies, and now you're going to go steal fucking candy from a little kid, and you steal almost all of his fucking cinnamon stick. Fuck you. His name is Tick. (laughs) But, honestly, it's just a weird scene, but it's part of the bonding process between Ergo and Tick over here, which happens, you know, throughout the whole film. We go back over, we also see Torkoal, he's like amazed at the emeralds that are in there, and he pockets some for herself, uh, which turn out later, when he goes outside, they turn into rocks when he tries to show them to the rest of the group. And that's actually funny, because when it does happen, the seer just kind of laughs at him. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Uh, so they turn to the seer, and the seer decides to use his powers to show where the Black Fortress is, but as he's showing the Black Fortress, the hand of the beast comes up and completely destroys the emerald, and that's where they figure out where they actually need to go to actually allow the seer to see where the Black Fortress is going to be. You all right? Yes. The beast does not like curious seers poking into his affairs. His power is too great for you to overcome. Yes, here. But there's one place where his power cannot reach. The Emerald Temple. Yes, in that place. He cannot oppose my vision. Will you travel there with us? It is in the Great Swamp. A treacherous place. Our need is great. So they go to the Great Swamp along with the Emerald Seer because he's like, you know what, I'm an old dude and maybe I can't make it there. And it's very great and powerful and deadly, but fuck it. I'll go. What the hell? We won't have to worry about it. And the kid can come along with us too because, you know, if anybody needs to be in a dangerous situation where they might die at a young age, it's this young kid. I need to make sure he comes along with me. So they go to the Great Swamp, which... I think I see a treyu over there in the fucking... No! No, 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 you can't sink down. No, no, no. A treyu! Anyway, so they go to the Great Swamp, and that's where we see the little, you know, old man tricking the Torkoal with the stones, the emerald stones, turning into rocks. And so, as they're walking through the swamp, all of a sudden, Slayers attack. No, put down the fucking instruments. Again, I'm not going through that joke. So the Slayers start to attack them, and they manage to kill off a couple more of the bandits of the party, because, hey, you know what, they're fucking fodder. They kill a lot of the Slayers, too, and then Rel comes back. We see that Ergo does save uh, Tick, or whatever the fuck the kid's name is. See, told you I'd forget it again. Um and we see that Rel once again, well, the Cyclops, who we're going to find out what his name is, uh, Rel, uh, saves them once again by tossing his spear. And we're actually introduced to him at the end of the first battle. That's the second time you've saved my life. I am Ergo. The Magnificent. Huh? Hasn't he got a name? His name is Rel. He visits the sea sometimes. He doesn't speak much. So I've noticed, except to be sarcastic to people who wish to be friends. Or jest with those who already are his friends. My name is no jest, Beanpole. It's all very well to have a short name when you're 20 feet tall, but small people need large names to give them weight. Your actions give you weight, my friend. I saw you save the boy from a spear. Well, that's what friends are supposed to do for each other. Quite so. 
You've been with us for a long way now. Since the beginning. When I learned that the old one had come down, I knew that the time had come. Join us then. All men need company. Yes, all men. So Rel joins the team and we hear the fanfare music and now he can be selected as part of the party. So they continue through the swamp trying to find whatever this emerald cave thing is, or this emerald, you know, the next magical city, and they run into a pit of quicksand. Well, they say that it's the beast's magic, and everybody's kind of sinking down in it. Uh, Colwyn, he decides to take over the seer and put him down on a rock, so that way, or like a tree stump, so that he can sit and be out of the way, and he can go into the swamp, into the quicksand, and loot the dead bodies that have sunken into the sand. There is kind of a sad scene where one of the party members, he's looking at everybody, he's slowly sinking, he's reaching out his hand, and they're trying to pull him, but ultimately he loses his grip, and he flows into the quicksand, and then they take his bag of stuff. Because, again, if somebody's going to die in your party, you want to make sure that you keep the equipment so that you can give it to somebody else. While all this is going down, we see that the Emerald Seer is being approached by somebody who is now completely changed into him. It's one of the changelings, and he kills the Emerald Seer and takes his place. He tries to go along with uh, the party. We see him, he tries to like be with Colwyn and his arm, like little fingers stretch out, but Torquil comes and says, no, you need to come with me instead, and I'll help lead you. And when they get to the place, he says to you know colwyn no you can must go alone and we'll go together and it's actually kind of neat because he opens his eyes and his eyes are completely black um and i actually really like the way the scene is done because it has a lot of build up to the whole moment you know it's going to happen you're kind of like inching closer like oh is he going to get away with it and you know that Colwyn is going to survive because hell we've seen parts of the end of the movie in the goddamn trailer which again Fucking A, I can't believe they even did that way back then. But they didn't really give away stuff, so you really didn't know. Um, but you're still seeing like the, the fingernails grow, and he's getting ready to take him out of the neck. And then all of a sudden, Rel comes, because Rel was sent back by the quicksand to watch to make sure nobody was following them. But he sees the dead body of the Emerald Seer raise out of the quicksand, and then he rushes. Man, this fucking Cyclops... Also being able to see his death, uh, his other superpower is running really fucking fast because he ran really fast and was strong enough to throw that spear and fucking kill this changeling and Corwin was also able to stop him at the same time and everybody rushes to Colwyn's side and we get to understand that the beast has many weapons. The beast has many weapons. This was one of them. A changeling... How did you know? I found the seer's body in the quicksand. He gave his life for us. He was my only family. We're your family now. Now we have no way to find the Black Fortress. There is one who might help. Who? The widow of the web. <laughs> that creature helps no one. And none who go there return. She has great power. <laughs> to kill. She may not kill me, for I know her name. Her name is Death. She had another name once. An ancient and powerful name. 
We all risk our lives on this journey. My risk is no greater than yours. I must try. So they decide that they're going to travel to this web of the widow or the widow's web or whatever the hell fuck it's called. And they're going to, because there's some weird connection in between Yanir and whatever this is, right? And it's the only way that they're going to be able to see where exactly the fortress is going to be. Now, if I understood correctly, at least with the swamp, they might have been able to just do it right away, but they did need to go to the Emerald Place. But maybe he could have tried it beforehand, before getting killed by a changeling and thrown in the fucking quicksand. We also have the fact that now little boy Trick Tech, fuck his name, whatever the fuck he is, is now lost without his family. And I'm sorry, whenever I hear family, I can only think of fucking Vin Diesel and his family. So I was expecting him to fucking come out of the swamp and his fucking messed up GT coming out. No, your family. And I have the horrible fucking Vin Diesel, but fuck it. Am I known for my fucking imitations? Maybe. <laughs> I can do a mean Japanese guy. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden they're accepting him. Yeah, now kid, now you can come along with us and go to the Black Fortress and just fucking die like the rest of this group is. Or maybe we won't kill a kid. Or maybe we don't need a kid. Or maybe we need a cat! Oh, sorry. Wrong fucking little short <laughs> as it is. So, we decide to travel along to the web of whatever the widow's web web of shadows where the fuck you want to call it uh and they decide that they're gonna have to wait for a while because yanir says that only he can go because she'll kill anybody else that's with him and he isn't able to actually stop maybe stop the spider for a time and actually get the knowledge that they need so as he goes off everybody decides in this little forest area that they're all going to just relax and we learn that Liam Neeson's character has exactly how many wives? We have no food. And the men are too tired to hunt. Hey Kagan. Hello. Doesn't one of your wives live in a village near here? Lona. No, no, she she moved down to the river. How many wives does he have? About seven or eight at the last count. Well, he's a travelling man, you see. He covers a lot of ground. Merit. Yeah, she, she lives in a village at the age of the giant sea. Can she cook? Huh? It's not her strongest point. But here, I tell you. Hey, <laughs> just have to bring provisions, eh? Magnificence there, reckons you can cook. So there is one thing that I forgot to mention that I actually, you, you get a bitter, like, you realize that Ergo maybe is not as much a dick as he actually seems that he is because after the, you know, Emerald Seer has died and Tech has no family, where the fuck his name is, and he had asked him at one point, he said, you know, if you could have any wish, what would you have? And he said, I'd wish for a puppy. And he's like, wouldn't you wish for like a thousand puppies? He's like, no, I only need one. And so after, you know, he sees that he's down, he uses his magic to turn himself into a puppy. So that way that, you know, Tech can, whatever the fuck his name is, can take him with him and actually feel a little better. And when they get to this foresty area, he turns back into himself and the Cyclops sees him and smiles and he's like, oh, I still think that's a bad wish. So they're settling down for the night. They're going to get some bitches and some food, uh, especially, you know, Neeson's over here. He's going to make sure that he goes to see one of his eight fucking wives, eight fucking wives. And it's the wife that can't fucking cook. 
That's the one that you have nearby? What's the point of having the wife? What are you, fucking Al Bundy of shitty wives? Like, come on. You, you at least should have something. But they do bring food and provisions to everybody and cook for the entire camp. So she can't be that shitty of a wife uh, because she actually helped out. We see that Yanir has traveled to the spider's cave and he started to go inside the cave and uh, we see the crystal spider for the first time and it actually is one of the most beautiful parts of this film. The stop motion animation for it is fucking fantastic and the model of the spider looks fucking great. I, again, the set design in this place is absolutely amazing and it's another reason why the costs on the movie ballooned because as the script evolved, they had to create these more intricate sets and this is one of those intricate sets that exist in this film. So while he's busy trying to get to the center of the spider's web, we go back over and we see there's all these like interlaced scenes between the beasts and Lissa. Uh, and the first one is just telling him like, you're here, you're going to be my wife and uh, this is our place. And it's framed really beautifully with this giant eye. And then he tells her that she's got free run of the place and she has free run. Um, and she sees a couple of them. She tries to find ways to escape, but eventually she's captured inside of a room. And he tells her that she can't get away and that she will be his bride. Then finally we get to this scene where everybody's camped out in the distance. And he's still trying to explain to her that why do you want to marry for love when you can have all this power at the same time? Like, look, I'm really the better guy. And this is one of the longer scenes that the Beast actually talks to Lissa uh, in the whole movie. I should also mention the fact that at the same time while this is going on, one of the helpers for, you know, Liam Neeson's wife is there and she's been working with Colwyn and she's been seeing really distraught. And actually she's an agent that's been sent over to seduce him and to prove that love doesn't truly exist. And of course, this doesn't play out the way the Beast wants and the Beast ultimately gives an ultimatum to Lissa in terms of being his wife. You have chosen a paltry kingdom on an insignificant planet. And love. Love is fleeting. Power is eternal. Such is my power. It can be yours. I don't want your power. Do not let my form frighten you. Lisa. I could assume any form I wish. Any form you wish. There's no love in that form. And you think there's love in your boy, King? I've not held a man in my arms since my lover left. This is a lie. I know how painful it is to be far from love. He will betray you. Comfort me for one night. He will not. I can't betray my bride. Then he will die. Let me comfort you. I can't accept comfort when she has none. You will not then. I cannot. My master said, make him betray him, if not kill him. Yes, he is my master. These talents were a heartbeat away from your throat. I could have killed you in an instant. But in the hour I knew you, I loved you. 
Tis you who are betrayed. Power is fleeting. Love is eternal. Remember me. Consider this power. If you consent to be my queen, I will halt the attacks of the slayers. It is in your power to stop the killing and burning. Each hour you delay, more innocent people will be killed. Think on it. Oh, so basically, you know, marry me or a bunch of fucking people are going to die. Like, what the hell? Are you going to tell me that this movie ultimately is love fucking conquers all? Like, that's the whole big fucking thing. We're going through this whole fucking journey so that we get to that fucking point that love is the thing that's going to beat fucking evil no matter what. Because that's what you're fucking setting up for me. And I just... Ugh. That always fucking irks me when it comes to these types of movies where why can't we just have the guy fight and like actually win the battle but no, there's going to be something to do with love or some fucking bullshit that's going to go on here and oh my god, I hope that that wasn't the real reason that this movie was done. So he totally denies this chick that's willing to fucking sleep with him right away. And he's like in the beginning, no, well, I can't do it because there's nobody to, to like comfort her. And she's like, basically, let me fuck you and everything will be okay. And he's like, oh, well, no, I can't let you fuck me because there's nobody to fuck Lissa right now. And that's all I'm fucking thinking about is getting in that sweet, sweet poontang. Like, what? (laughs) At least that's the way that I fucking interpret it when he's like, oh, well, there's no one there. The other way to do it is like, look, no, you can't. I can't like comfort you and be with you right now because there's no one to keep her from being scared and whatever it is. But she's literally talking about fucking him, and he's literally saying, no, I can't do it. And it's good on him, because, you know, he's totally, like, leaving that all aside. And she's, you know, honestly, I'd rather have his wife or his bride-to-be than this lady either. But it's fantasy times, and who the fuck... I mean, Neeson's over here has eight fucking wives, and you could probably just get away with it. But it's all to try to break its spirit. And then you find out, like... Within an hour of spending with him, she's in fucking love with him? What kind of fucking voodoo magic does he have on this guy? Like, did she, like, open up his fucking pants and there's the giant fucking dick right there? Like, was the fact that he's a king and she saw the little kingly symbol and he doesn't shut up about being fucking king? That was what did it for him? Like, what exactly happened that made her fall in love with him within an hour? And you know what? The fact that you fell in love with him is the fact that you're fucking dead. Like, it makes no fucking sense to me that all of a sudden it'd be like, I met you. I'm totally in love with you. That means you're a fucking stalker, lady. Like, you're gonna go through collecting pieces of his fucking hair. You're gonna put it on your fucking little voodoo doll. You're gonna send him fucking notes with all these fucking letters all over the place. You're gonna take pictures of him and you're gonna cut him out, you know, go into his house and steal pictures of his wife and him and put your face on top of it and put it back up on the fucking mantle because you're that much fucking in love with him. You're a fucking stalker. Not in fucking love with him, okay? So... She dies, he dies, everybody dies. No, uh, she, she dies and we go back from here now that the camp's in an uproar. We go over to the crystal spider. And we see that Yanir, he's traveling along and the spider's about to get to him. And he shouts out the real name of uh, the person that's actually in the center. 
and she's kind of like an enchantress slash seer, and I guess she's got more power than the Emerald Seer, but they didn't want to go to her first because they would have had to brave the fucking Crystal Spider. So she hears her name, and then she turns over this hourglass, which gives him just enough time to get past the Crystal Spider and into the center of the web so that they can meet each other for the first time in a long time. Now, this is quite possibly, I think it's the longest scene that we have for the fucking clips that I'm going through, but there is this weird backstory that is told to us right here, right now, that I don't understand why it's in the whole freaking film. But it's a very tragic story that is pertinent to the overall arching story because it seems like these two were in the same situation that our current star-crossed lovers are stuck into, uh, except for the fact that, uh, you know, one, they don't have a kid, and two, she hasn't tried to kill her kid yet. I was young when I last heard that name. I was young when I last spoke it to you. And my face was as beautiful as my name. And I loved you, Lissa, with all my heart. But you would not stay with me. There were responsibilities, duty. Ambition. You had a son. We had a son. But you said nothing. Where is he? I killed him when he was born. And this is my punishment. My son. Yes. Since I could not kill you, my rage needed a victim. I know you can never forgive me. I cannot forgive myself. I have already forgiven you. You can never forgive a woman who has killed your son. If I had not, could I see you now as I saw you then? And allow me to see through your eyes. Your vision is your gift to me. And your vision could be your gift to me. What can I see for you? The Black Fortress, where does it rise? Tomorrow. In the Iron Desert. But the knowledge is useless to you, for you cannot leave here. No man has ever escaped the web. There's a young girl being held in the fortress. A young girl with your name. A young man seeks her. A young man. The age I was when you and I met. When you and I loved. What you ask is beyond my power. 
to be turned only once. That is the lure of the web. Then the second lesser will share your fate. She will die, grow old, lonely. She will die in a place of darkness. This whole world will be a place of darkness. These are the sands of my life. Accept them and the spider will have no power to harm you. But your own life runs out with the sand. What about your life? I give it to the girl who bears my name. So she breaks open the hourglass that contains the days of her life and gives them over to Yanir. And Yanir basically only has a little bit of time to get out of the place and also get back to camp to tell him exactly where the Black Fortress is going to be. As we watch him struggle to get over the webs, he's constantly spilling sand. Like, does the sand like have some type of like liquidish form so that it's constantly pouring out of his hands, or what exactly is going on because he can't seem to hold it, and he only has that much time? Who knows how much, I mean, he barely had enough time to get in there, so for him to be able to crawl over the fucking web and to get back to the camp, that hourglass probably has about maybe ten minutes, five minutes. Like, it was really quick, the amount of time that he needed, and he struggled to get along the web, and he's got that same amount of time, and then he's going to fucking die. Like, it's not that he can't get away, and he's got to pour some of the sand out for his homies to make sure that the crystal spider doesn't fucking attack him at the same time. It's a very odd situation. Like, you would think that maybe you could put it into a bag, you know, or put it into the glove, but he is wearing fingerless gloves, so I guess they're not really going to help him anything. It's kind of just kind of weird that, you know, that's the way that Yanir is going to go down, and it really kind of sucks. So, he's flying back to camp. Also, the story between them is very weird. She got very jealous that he left her, and he's like, I should never have left you. And then they had a son, and she had to take her rage out on somebody, so she fucking whacked out the son. Like, he's dead. And he's like, oh, well, I still forgive you. Fuck you! Why the fuck are you gonna... You're only fucking forgiving her because you need her to do what she needs to do. You need to be able to see where the fucking Black Fortress is. And if you lie to her enough and be like, I'm not upset that you killed our son because it's my fault because I broke your fucking heart. So you're gonna, like, be upset and mad and you're gonna go ahead and kill your fucking son instead? What the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you fucking do that? And you're totally going to be like, yeah, I totally forgive you. Now fucking tell me where this thing is so that you can just fucking die and live the fucking life that you never fucking lived anyway. And I'm going to get the fuck out of here. Now I got to die to get the fuck out of here to tell everybody how to save the life of the people that we need to save. And this is all over one girl who could just marry the beast and fucking be the ruler of the universe. What if that was just a fucking movie? She marries the beast, they have a son, and the beast's son is the fucking ruler of the universe. Do you ever think that maybe that's what the prophecy should have fucking been? Not the fact that everybody's gotta fucking die anyway to get you to get your own fucking pussy back? Like, what the hell is going on with this fucking movie? But anyway, so he does get back to the camp, and we have to say goodbye to Yanir, because... The moment that he gets there, the last grains of the sand fall from his hands. At sunrise, the Black Fortress will appear in the Iron Desert 
It will remain there until sunrise of the following day. You must... You must reach it. <coughs> we'll reach it. Oh. You'll be with us. So Yanir dies in kind of a cliche way, and this is not going to stop. Because now that we've met all of the characters, the ones at least that talk, they're all probably going to have some type of scene like In fact, they're all going to have some type of scene like this, where the ones that do die, they're all going to have to have a going out death scene. So he gets the very first one where he talks back because they've been traveling forever. And who knows, this could have been months, this could have been years. I'm not sure what the time frame is. But they decide that they've got to get over to wherever this desert is going to be because it only lasts there for a day and then it's going to be fucking gone when the sun sets. So they figure out the best way to get there is to use fire mares. And fire mares are exactly what you think about. They're horses that can run really fucking fast. In fact, so fast that they can fly through the sky. Well, at least seems like the sky on flames. Uh, but I think it's just across the landscape so they can get to where they're going. So we have to watch a whole scene of them actually capturing the, cor- the horses. Like, they could have gone there, done it a little bit. But luckily, it's still not as long as the fucking rock climbing scene in the beginning of the movie. And honestly, maybe this should have been longer than the fucking rock climbing scene. Because it's kind of interesting, you know, even Rel's not strong enough to hold down one of the fire mares and him and Colwyn get pulled around. But they do manage to finally wrangle the, the lead one and wrangle all the other ones. And that's where Rel says his goodbyes because it's his time to die. He realizes that his fate is up and this is the vision that he's seen. And he says to him, to each man their fate. I believe that's the saying or some shit like that. But they go ahead and leave him and we know that this is the last that we've seen of Rel. Uh, and they go off on their fiery landscape and eventually reach the Black Fortress. And when they start climbing up the side of the castle, the Beast knows that it's there, sends Slayer to go after them, and they go ahead and start, you know, having a battle on the side of the mountain, or of the Black Fortress. Eventually, though, Rel does show up once again because he says, be damned, that's not where I need to die. I need to die with you guys, and manages to hold open one of the doors as it's closing. All the guys get inside, two more of the bandits get shot and killed, and Rel unfortunately gets crushed to death by the doors. Like, that is fucked up. What would have your death actually been, like, if you just left with the horses? Were the horses going to fucking trample you to death? Is that the way that you're going to die? Or were you just going to sit there and pass away peacefully? But no, you decided, you know what? The best way for me to do this is to get crushed to fucking death by a pair of doors. And it fucking sucks because, like, they're trying to help him. And instead of, like, maybe try to pull through, they're just watching him fucking die. And they're just like, okay, well, I guess it was his time. He needs to fucking die. So the rest of them escape the other slayers that are there, and they're running through the hallways, and eventually they come to a corridor, and they're trying to figure out which way to go. Uh, 
I should also mention that outside, uh, Robbie Coltrane's character, he does get shot and he gets killed. And he also gets another stereotypical cliche death where he says, you know what? The adventure really was worth it. Uh, I'm dead. Uh, and then on the inside, when they're running around the corridors, one of the Slayers comes and almost shoots uh, Torquil, but instead Neeson's character jumps in the way, dies, and he's like, no, you can just leave me here. I'm going to die. I, I, I can't do a Liam Neeson. Uh, just tell my wife, the one that couldn't cook very well, that I love her. What about the other seven fucking wives? Do you even think about them? That was the one that you loved the most, and that's the one that you're going to tell, make sure that she knows that I loved her? So he's dead there in the fortress, and then all of a sudden, the ground opens up, and we have Ergo and Tick, Trick, where the fuck his name is. They fall down. They're going to lower Corwin down there to go and, uh, you know, help them. But it starts closing up. And instead of just letting the rope go and letting him go and be with them and th- split up, they pull him up so that, no, you need to come with the rest of us that are left here. So it's Unibrow, Random Guy, Torquil, and Corwin that are now running to the center of the Black Fortress. We see Ergo, he changes into a tiger to protect Trick uh, and manages to kill one of the Slayers by fucking slicing him in the head with his tiger paw. And they go ahead and they travel on without everybody else. Uh, when they get to the center of the room, uh, you know, Toriko's like, how are we going to break in there? And that's when we finally get to see the glaive used as a tool to cut a hole into the wall. That's the first time that we see it. That's it. Like, they go, what? <laughs> like, the rest of them, they go off and try to find another way in. But he just keeps, like, using the glaive. Like, this was the big thing. This is the reason. I thought it was to, like, fight the fucking beast. Like, the whole idea was for you to have it for when the beast attacks. You can fucking throw it at him or whatever and try to kill him. And that's the way that it's going to go. But no, instead it's for you to open a fucking wall. Like, really? It's fucking stupid. But he does eventually get the wall down. He does rescue Lissa and they start running away. And he's going to fight the beast, but she's like, no, he's too powerful in this area. Yeah, sure, he's too powerful. So let's go off to somewhere else. And eventually there is the glaive war between him and the beast where he's throwing the glaive at the beast. And he's cutting him and eventually it sticks inside the beast's neck and the beast falls over. While this is happening... Torquil and the other, and Unibrow and the other guy have all fallen into a trap where there are spikes coming out of the walls, and eventually it traps all of them in one place. And like it's spikes to where they could like maneuver themselves kind of in a way so that they won't get fucking stabbed. But the big dumb fucking bandit thief fighter guy, where the fuck is, I don't even know what the fuck his name is, he drops his dagger and he's in a spot where he's not gonna get killed. But he goes down to do it, so when the spikes start coming back up again, because the beast survives the attack from the glaive being stuck in his neck, he gets it right in the stomach and he dies. So we're left with fucking Unibrow still being fucking alive and Torquil. Those are the last two of this whole fucking party that managed... And what did Unibrow fucking do other than be the first one to say, I'm going to join and I'm going to fucking leave you anyway? Is that why he got to live? He hasn't done shit. He doesn't kill anybody. He doesn't. He just stands there with his fucking unibrow. That's it. That's his magical power. Maybe the unibrow gives him the ability of fucking shield and not fucking dying when he needs to. Anyway, so they're running away. They're trying to escape the place because they think that they've killed a beast. And so we have Colwyn and Lissa. They're 
like trying to figure out how to get out and then all of a sudden they are confronted by the beast he shows up he's not dead and that's when they realize that what fucking conquers all the glaive is gone i have no way to fight him Alyssa, it's us. It's us he can't defeat. It will not return to me except from the hand of the woman I choose as my wife. I give it only to the man whom I choose as my husband. Take the fire from my hand. Motherfucker! <laughs> it truly is fucking power of fucking love that conquers fucking... All. God fucking damn it, I fucking knew it i fucking knew it why 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 do we have to do this bullshit again and what does it give him gives him a magical fucking flamethrower hand like he's fucking mega man here and he just killed one of the bosses and he got fucking fireman's ability and he's gonna fucking flame the fucking beast from far away and it's one of the most ridiculous fucking fights that you've ever fucking seen because all the beast does is shoot fucking projectiles it literally is a fucking video game here he's shooting projectiles from his mouth he's not even fucking dodging but the magical love fucking flame that's shooting from his hands because now they're finally married even though there isn't like you know a priest or a seer or anybody else that's right there to fucking bless the fucking wedding they're magically married he's getting the fucking flame back and that is what's being used to deflect the fucking bullets that are coming out of the fucking mouth or what are the energy shots or however you want to do it and he's using the flame to kill the fucking beast it is the most anticlimactic, stupid fucking final fight I've ever seen in a fucking movie that there is. It makes no fucking sense other than love fucking conquers all. Fuck your bullshit. It was a lot cooler when he was using the fucking glaive to actually do something. What is the importance of the fucking glaive if it does fucking nothing? You need the power of the glaive. You don't need the fucking power of the glaive. You just need to be fucking married. That's how you defeat the fucking beast. You find somebody, you fucking marry him, you get your fucking fire, and then you throw your fucking fire at the person. What was the point of even going after the fucking glaive in the first place? There was no fucking point. So that whole fucking five minutes of watching him go through a fucking mountain was used for nothing. Nothing. You didn't... I wasted five minutes of my fucking life watching that scene. And it amounts to the whole thing of, no, you just needed to you know, get with his wife and fucking get him married. And then he gets his flame back and he's able to use his flame that he never fucking knew that he could do. Like... What 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 the fuck, man? Like, it could have been so much cooler. You could have had a really badass fucking sword scene where the beast comes in. Like, really cool costume. I have to speak of, like, legend here in this regard, which was around this time frame. And you have a badass fucking final confrontation between Tom Cruise and Tim Curry in that film. It maybe is a little clunky because, you know, Tim Curry's devil character... The Horn, whatever, Horn King or whatever you want to call him, you know, is a little clunky, but it's still exciting. Here, I'm looking at a guy pointing his fucking hand at a fucking green screen, fucking fire going out there where the digitized version of the fucking beast is in the background, blowing his fucking load and trying to fucking land it on top of these two, and he can't fucking do it. So, eventually, 
he does fucking die. And the whole thing starts crumbling around him. We see that Torquil and Unibrow, they're now saved because even though they started getting stabbed, they're not as bad as the stupid guy that was on the ground that went after his dagger and got stabbed through the stomach. The Unibrow guy never took a lick of damage because he's fucking invincible because of that fucking Unibrow. So... We have everything. They've all now started gathering together, and they're all joining to escape the whole fucking fortress that's falling down. They run into Ergo and Trisket, or where the fuck the kid's name is, and they manage to escape it before everything is destroyed. Uh, Ergo turns, you know, he's back to himself outside of the castle. He looks up, he meets, uh, you know, his wife for the first time. Everybody but these people are dead. So you've got Colwyn and Lyssa, you've got Ergo and Trisket, and then you've got uh, Unibrow and Torquil. Those are our surviving members of the party. They have the relaxing thing. We see that Torquil is now going to be made the Lord Commander or where the fuck it is. And we end the film. Ergo! Ergo! He'll be alright. You are his queen? Yes. Then we won. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. I should have stuck to puppies. Oh. I think it's time you unlock those manacles, huh? Well, uh, I thought I'd keep them as a memento of our journey. Well, the key's yours. Only the king and his lord marshal carry this key. That's right. A girl of ancient name shall become queen. She shall choose a king, and together they shall rule our world. And their son shall rule the galaxy. And so that was Kroll, and that's the end of the film. And honestly, like, as much as the ending of this film actually really pisses me off, the overall film is just okay. It's not, like, the cinematic masterpiece that you want it to be. It's not a, like, the fantasy epic everybody kind of thought it would be. It's really slow. It's really dull in parts. It could be saved by cutting it down by about a half an hour to 40 minutes. The runtime of this movie is an hour, uh, sorry, 120 minutes almost exactly. So two hours to watch this film where there just seems like there's a bunch of filler. And like I said, everything just feels like little segments pieced together rather than a full fluid movie. So it's like, I remember as a kid just really being enamored and loving this movie. And honestly, I saw this about, uh, about say, seven or eight years ago because I saw it on something, so either it was something streaming like Netflix or Stars or HBO or something, and I was like, oh yeah, crawl. And I remember watching the whole thing and being like, oh, it's not so bad. But going back through it this time, I just, 
Like, uh, there was just something about it that just, like, bored me to tears. I can't believe that I felt like this was supposed to be some magical journey and ended up just being some type of hokey bullshit, to be honest with you. So, if I have to go through and I have to rate the movie, in terms of the gore factor, it's a 1 out of 5. There's nothing really gory about it except for the weird brain things, the lobsters that are coming out of the heads of the slayers that go into the ground. Then, uh, for the crap factor, I'm giving it a, a generous 3 out of 5. I could have done it a 4 out of 5, but honestly, the sets, the designs are beautiful. I love the costuming of the film. I love the way the slayers work or look, and I love the way the beast looks pretty good, too, in some scenes, except for at the end where you finally see him, like, for the whole thing. But, like, when you just get, like, the eye and everything like that, it's perfectly creepy, and I love it. But... The acting is not the best in the world. The story could be much fucking better because it feels so disjointed and you never know where it's really going to go. It's like, okay, now we're going to do this trope. Okay, now we're going to do this. Oh, we have to have some type of big monster because it's a fantasy movie. Oh, we need these things. Like, there's supposed to be sci-fi stuff in it, but there's not a whole lot of sci-fi stuff other than the fact that the Slayers and the Beast come from somewhere outside of their normal universe and have landed on Crawl and have advanced weaponry. That's really it. There's nothing else. Like, if you're trying to really make a Star Wars type movie, it's kind of, uh. The fun factor, I give it a 2 out of 5. Originally, I gave it a 3, but it's not as fun as even going through it the this next time, like, these two times. It, it has its moments that are very enjoyable, and honestly, Ergo is very annoying, but he becomes enjoyable by the end of the film because of his relationship with Trek, or Trick, or whatever the fuck his name is. And... It's, But it's still not enough of a comic relief moment to make me be like, yeah, I gotta do that. I hate Colwyn's character just because he's always kind of a bitch and always kind of really smug about himself. And then the whole way the ending went, it's just like, okay, yeah, I get it. True love fucking conquers all, blah, blah, blah. Do we really need that? Like, I would really love to have a real fucking final fight between the two. And it would have been just cool, even if you, you don't have to have this giant beast character. Because he comes down and he uses his body. Why couldn't he just come down, make himself small, and like try to overpower him with it? And then the glaive, which is this really coolly designed weapon, and it's fantastic. That's the thing that is like you're waiting for them to fucking use. And then they barely fucking use it, and it's for bullshit. Most of it is to tear down the fucking wall, which eventually he can do with his fucking flame hand, as that's how they escape the Black Fortress when they get to a dead end. So it's just, you know, it's fun when it can be fun, when the action is going. The, the I should say that the scenes when the Slayers attack, those are fun and those can be tense. And even that scene with the fake Emerald Seer, I really enjoy that scene. And you're really kind of on edge. Oh, is the action going to get him? You know, those scenes are fun. But overall, it's just not as fun as it could be. So what do I give Kroll ultimately? Um, I'm going to give this 2 out of 5 Glaives. It's... You know, your mileage may vary. If you have this nostalgic love for this film, keep it. Don't watch it again. Um, if you're interested in seeing it, um, know that you could probably fast forward through it. Or you could put it on in the background do a couple of other things while you're watching the movie. It's not something that I would recommend for everybody. But definitely as a piece of cult nostalgia for fantasy films. Yeah, if you really want to see those cult films, this is the way to go. So with that being said... Um, 
we have something very special for you for the next episode. We actually is the right term to say. Um, normally, it should just be, I have something special. Next episode is episode 100. And oh my god, I can't believe that I've done 100 episodes of this show. Um, I've done quite a bit more just because we do bonuses and everything like that. But the true episodes, which are actually would be numbered, it is 100. Um, and so, with that being said, uh, there is a fantasy movie i would say it's actually nice it's an anthology movie um it is a good mix of fantasy horror and sci-fi uh and i thought that doing a fantasy film leading into this type of movie would be the best way to kind of get you geared up for what we're gonna do and what i'm gonna do with a part of it when we watch our next film Columbia Pictures presents Heavy Metal. A trip beyond the future to a universe you've never seen before. A universe of mystery. A universe of passionate fantasies. A universe of terrifying evil. A universe of magic. Heavy Metal. That's right, I'm going to look at the true cult classic Heavy Metal from uh, the 80s. It It is a film that is, it is, I, I will have to say, depending on your time frame, for me, it's a love it film. I'm unabashedly, I fucking love this movie. I grew up watching this movie on TBS when they would show it. Uh, late at night when they would show it with Vampire Hunter D. Uh, those two movies were like the things that got me into adult animation when I shouldn't have been into adult animation. Uh, and my love for anime really started with Vampire Hunter D and Robotech. Uh, but, you know, I didn't know that that was Japanese animation at the time because I was way too young. But this, this is like hands down one of my favorite favorite movies i love everything about this movie like you do not understand when i say i love everything i don't think there's a bad thing in this movie and that's not necessarily shared by everybody um so uh, though if you're listening to this i'm pretty sure that you've heard of this movie and you may have watched it but again your age and your mileage may vary but man i'm looking forward to doing episode 100 on heavy metal um it is hard to find um, you can rent it from iTunes, from Amazon, uh, as well as things like Vudu and a couple other th- places. Um, you can watch clips on YouTube. I don't know if the full thing's available on YouTube. You can definitely rent it from there. Um, but pull out those DVDs, watch that before we do it. And I've got something very special for everybody when that episode is released. So I really hope that you enjoy it. Um, I'm having a blast uh, doing the episode and getting everything pulled together and making sure that it's a great episode for everybody. Um, and I, I am very excited to talk about heavy metal next week. 
Also, before I go, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. First, I want to give a quick shout out to James Mansell. Um, he just directed a new little short. I'm going to put it into the show notes for this week. It's called Ruptured. It's very, very entertaining. I really like the thought and uh, I like the way that it was done. Um, so please go and check that out. Make sure that you do check that out and tell them that the Terrible Terror sent you. And also, um, I want to talk about a really quick episode that is going to be coming out this week with uh, Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. Shortly after this episode has been released, uh, he had me on there to talk to Victoria Price, who is the daughter of uh, Vincent Price. Oh my God. So we're going to record the interview with her, and then we're going to record a little bit before. He's going to put it all together, and you're going to be able to listen to us talk about one of our favorite horror icons. Uh, It was absolutely amazing talking to Victoria um, oh my God, I'm still like, like shaking a little bit after speaking with her because it was just such a eye opening experience and fun to talk. And I felt like at times I was just sitting there listening and oh shit, I've got to fucking talk. So, uh, yeah. So don't forget to check out that, uh, little short that was out there. And I believe that Dave is also going to have a short, hopefully soon that you can see. Um, that we will also promote when the podcast comes. So with that being said, uh, make sure that you check out the podcast on all of our social platforms. You can go find us on facebook.com slash terrible terror podcast, Instagram, terrible terror podcast, Twitter, T underscore T underscore podcast, email us anything that you want. Well, us, me, anything that you would like to see later on or any comments, suggestions, terrible terror podcast at gmail.com. Um, we will be, there are the YouTube channel, terrible terror podcast where you can see reviews uh for the prodigy uh which we went and saw i did that with pat and there's going to be a couple other ones especially with captain marvel coming out at the time of this recording there should be a car review up for that this weekend so i want to thank you guys for listening this is episode 99 i'm so excited please 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 watch heavy metal for episode 100 and we'll see you then